Chronic pelvic pain is a common, burdensome, and costly condition that obviously disproportionately affects women. There is a lack of consensus on the definition of chronic pelvic pain, which has impeded efforts to understand its prevalence and the success of treatment alternatives. In March of 2020, the ACOG will release a new practice bulletin, which is number 218 on chronic pelvic pain, and that's the subject of our episode. The ACOG defines chronic pelvic pain as a pain syndrome perceived to originate from pelvic organs or pelvic structures, typically lasting more than six months. It's often associated with negative cognitive, behavioral, sexual, and even emotional consequences, as well as symptoms that can suggest lower urinary tract infection, sexual bowel, pelvic floor, myofascial, or gynecological dysfunction. Now, although cyclic pelvic pain is considered a form of chronic pelvic pain, that actually has a different workup. For CPP, or chronic pelvic pain, as we're talking about it here, we're talking about pain that's been present for more than six months, more or less on a daily condition, but can have some exacerbation monthly. A systematic review of high-quality studies by the WHO found that there's a wide range of CPP reported. It can go from anywhere from 2% up to 24% for non-cyclic pain, about 8 to 21% for dyspareunia, and 16 to 81% for dysmenorrhea. But a new definition as of 2014, which used the more stringent definition of non-cyclical pain lasting at least six months, found an overall presence of this condition of around 6% to 27% in females. In order to understand this whole chronic pelvic pain issue, we really have to understand the issue of central sensitization. Recent evidence supports the importance of central sensitization in perpetuating these chronic pain syndromes. Central sensitization occurs when peripheral pain provokes an exaggerated response by the interneurons, which amplifies the pain perception. The resulting pathological changes involve the central nervous system's response to noxious stimuli, the activation of specific brain regions, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and the autonomic nervous system, all of which increase psychologic distress. Now, central sensitization explains why patients with chronic pain often feel pain in response to otherwise innocuous stimuli, that's called allodynia, and they tend to feel a heightened response to painful stimuli, a condition called hyperalgesia. This abnormal central processing of sensory information can help to explain why endometriosis pain can actually persist despite effective treatment options. Now, let's come back and talk about differential diagnosis, which can be actually quite varied, but it helps to group differential diagnoses into three main boxes, visceral causes, neuromuscular causes, and then psychosocial issues. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33 with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
The differential diagnosis for chronic pelvic pain is extensive, but organizing the possibilities into visceral, neuromuscular, and psychosocial contributors actually helps to think about the differential diagnosis in a systematic way. The multifactorial nature of chronic pelvic pain itself leads to an interdisciplinary model of care that seeks to identify and treat an individual's physical pain generators as well as comorbid conditions like depression and anxiety, which together create the symptomatology and contribute to the overall burden of disease. Visceral etiologies include disorders of the gynecological, GI, and neurological systems, All right, so of these three subtypes, visceral, neuromuscular, skeletal, and psychosocial, remember that each of these can be further subdivided as well. For visceral options, this can be subdivided into gynecological causes, gastrointestinal causes of pain, and even urologic. Under the gynecological options for visceral chronic pelvic pain, this is obviously where endometriosis would live, but also vestibulitis, vulvodynia, adenomyosis, chronic pelvic inflammatory disease, or pelvic masses. For the visceral option and gastrointestinal subdivision, this were things like celiac disease, colorectal cancer, diverticulitis, or inflammatory bowel disease can live. Now, as for the urological subtype, this is where interstitial cystitis or the painful bladder syndrome or even things like chronic complicated UTI can live. For the second major category, which is neuromusculoskeletal, remember to look for things like myofascial disorders, postural syndrome, abdominal wall syndromes like muscular injury or trigger point that can be causing vascular or abdominal spasm, and neurological issues like abdominal epilepsy or an abdominal migraine. Remember, these are rare, but they are out there and they've been identified as causes of chronic pelvic pain in women. Under psychosocial causes, which is the third main category, these can also be subdivided into abusive histories like physical, emotional, or prior sexual abuse. Depressive disorders and anxiety disorders can also play a role as a cause under the psychosocial banner for chronic pelvic pain causation. All right, I think it's time that we have to clarify or at least stress an important issue as it relates to the psychosocial factors regarding chronic pelvic pain. Psychosocial factors do play a role in all types of pain and can affect symptom severity and prognosis. Pelvic pain and dyspareunia are more prevalent in women with a history of abuse, mental illness, lack of support, social stressors, and relationship discord. These comorbidities do not alter the visceral or the neuromusculoskeletal pain generators, but may worsen the associated symptom burden and the psychological effects. Treating psychosocial factors as separate but equally important pain contributors can increase the woman's awareness of her conscious and unconscious perception of pain and can actually help facilitate her recovery. Okay, in this practice bulletin, it does talk about a topic that I actually learned in medical school and residency. Well, this condition has pretty much gone by the wayside. We're talking about pelvic congestion syndrome. This was a proposed etiology of chronic pelvic pain related to pelvic venous insufficiency, like pelvic varicose veins. 
Although venous congestion appears to be associated with chronic pelvic pain, evidence is insufficient, according to the college, to conclude that there is a cause and effect relationship. In addition, there is no consensus on the actual definition of this condition and diagnostic criteria are variable. So according to the college, further research is needed to establish greater consistency in the diagnosis and the homogeneity in the treatment studies. So for now, chronic pelvic pain can be an interesting consideration, but probably is not evidence-based. All right, now that we've laid down all that information, what's the initial evaluation for the patient who presents with chronic pelvic pain? Well, as you might have guessed, a detailed medical history and physical exam with particular attention to the abdominal and pelvic neuromusculoskeletal examination are recommended for the evaluation of chronic pelvic pain. Physical findings that increase the likelihood of a neuromusculoskeletal cause for the pain includes pelvic floor muscle tenderness and abdominal wall tenderness that's reproducible on exam. Perhaps the most critical portions of the evaluation for chronic pelvic pain are the detailed medical, surgical, and gynecological history and a thorough physical examination. A systematic history begins with patient-reported information completed before the visit, a detailed chronology of symptoms, and a review of previous treatments. The medical history should include specific chronology, triggers, and treatments of pain, as well as a review of all past medical diagnoses, surgical procedures, findings, obstetric history, medications, and of course, gynecological history. Regarding the physical exam, focusing the physical examination on the abdominal and pelvic neuromusculoskeletal system with inclusion of the visceral exam addresses most chronic pain etiologies. Remember, we go as gynecologists right to the vaginal area. However, for any patient who presents with chronic pelvic pain, don't forget about a detailed abdominal exam. So that's the clinical pearl. Attention to underlying myofascial structures, in addition to the viscera, is highly likely to yield an accurate diagnosis. Now, when we talk about specific physical exam findings, we have to talk about the Carnet test or the Carnet test based on who you talk to. That is C-A-R-N-E-T-T. The abdominal examination finding most associated with chronic pelvic pain can be demonstrated by the Carnet test. A positive Carnet test is defined by tenderness that worsens or does not improve during the abdominal wall muscle contraction. A negative Carnet test is when the visceral pain actually improves during the muscle contraction because the abdominal wall shields the viscera from the examiner's fingers. So a positive Carnet test is independently associated with severity of chronic pelvic pain to a similar degree as pelvic floor muscle tenderness. So remember, a positive Carnet test actually means that the pain might be coming from the abdominal wall, whereas a negative Carnet test points to visceral causes as the more likely offender. Laboratory and imaging tests for chronic pelvic pain are limited in their utility and should be tailored to the individual patient's symptom, 
physical exam and history findings. For example, patients with risk factors for chronic sexually transmitted infection should be tested for gonorrhea, chlamydia, mycoplasma, or trichomonal infections. Patients with uterine or adnexal tenderness or a suspicion of a pelvic mass should undergo further evaluation with a pelvic transvaginal ultrasound or diagnostic laparoscopy if the history and the physical exam proves necessary. Suspicion of chronic pelvic inflammatory disease can be evaluated further with an endometrial biopsy or transvaginal ultrasound. Okay, now that we've talked about the workup and we're getting into the treatment, remember that it's not all medical therapy, but there is room for other adjuvant care based on what the offender could be. Remember that pelvic floor physical therapy actually may have a role. Pelvic floor muscle tenderness is commonly associated with chronic pelvic pain. Physical therapists use a wide range of modalities and tools tailored to each patient's specific symptoms and clinical findings. These can include external and internal tissue mobilization and myofascial release, manipulative therapies to mobilize visceral, urogenital, and joint structures, electrical stimulation, active pelvic floor retraining, or even biofeedback. In one randomized trial, pelvic floor physical therapy and levator-directed trigger point injections were equally effective in markedly decreasing vaginal pain and sex-related pain disorders. Patients who do not improve with pelvic floor physical therapy may be found to have treatable musculoskeletal disorders identified by a physician specialized in physical medicine and rehab if we're confident that this is a neuromusculoskeletal issue and not a visceral or psychosocial issue alone. As we wrap up the podcast, a quick word about the use of neuropathic medication in the treatment of chronic pelvic pain. We're talking about medications like SNRIs or traditional antidepressants. Remember, we're not going to get into specific issues like painful bladder syndrome or interstitial cystitis or endometriosis because those are the topics of other practice bulletins and we've covered those separately in separate podcasts. But based upon their effectiveness of other neuropathic pain syndromes, serotonin norepi reuptake inhibitors or SNRIs are recommended for patients with neuropathic chronic pelvic pain. These medications can be prescribed by any OBGYN physician or healthcare provider. Antidepressant medications are most commonly prescribed alone or with psychotherapy for management of moderate to severe depression. Antidepressant medications have also been evaluated in non-depressed patients with chronic pain syndromes. Now, although no studies have established the benefit of antidepressant use for improvement in chronic pelvic pain specifically, a systematic review of randomized double-blind clinical trials did find that SNRIs and tricyclics were superior to placebo for improving depressive symptoms pain, and quality of life measures in patients with neuropathic pain syndromes like fibromyalgia and diabetic neuropathy, with a number needed to treat of 24 patients for one to experience a clinical improvement. 
Additionally, based upon their effectiveness of other neuropathic pain syndromes, gabapentin and pregabalin are recommended for the treatment of neuropathic chronic pelvic pain syndromes. These medications can be prescribed, but once again, by any OBGYN physician. Neuropathic medications have a role in the medical management of chronic pelvic pain once underlying visceral etiologies have been addressed and a neuropathic component of the pain has been diagnosed. However, many studies are not specific to chronic pelvic pain and are small or retrospective in nature. Because neuropathic pain is often associated with tissue injury, it is critical to assess for and treat any concurrent myofascial dysfunction or true visceral impairment. Treatment with neuropathic medications may improve the effectiveness of physical therapy and myofascial dysfunction by improving sensorineural tolerance to stimuli. Now, outside of the neuropathic pain issues, if your patient is suspected of having a neuromusculoskeletal issue, remember that trigger point injections may provide some relief. Trigger point injections of saline, anesthetics, or even steroids alone or in combination with other treatment modalities are recommended to improve pain and functional ability in patients with myofascial chronic pelvic pain. All right, because gynecology is a surgical discipline, what's the role of laparoscopic adhesiolysis in the management of chronic pelvic pain? Well, the routine use of laparoscopic adhesiolysis, according to the college, is not recommended for the management of chronic pelvic pain. Laparoscopic adhesiolysis is not helpful for the treatment of chronic pelvic pain conditions after visceral gynecological causes such as endometriosis or adenomyosis or adnexal disorders have been excluded. However, intraoperative findings may support the role of adhesiolysis in specific circumstances, obviously like with a bowel stricture or dense adhesions that may be tethering the uterus and that can be a source of chronic pain. Adhesions are common in patients who have undergone previous abdominal surgery and in patients with inflammatory conditions like pelvic inflammatory disease or endometriosis. Pelvic adhesiolysis was once a common procedure in patients undergoing laparoscopy for chronic pelvic pain. Early uncontrolled studies showed large magnitude, short-lived improvements after lysis of adhesions. But a systematic review of two randomized trials and 11 cohort studies on laparoscopic adhesiolysis found a lack of evidence of benefit, an increased risk of bowel injury, and a high rate of negative laparoscopies, defined in the review as no diagnostic findings other than the adhesions. So in long-term follow-up study of a one randomized clinical trial included in the systematic review, pain outcomes were poorer 12 years after the laparoscopic adhesiolysis than after diagnostic laparoscopy alone. So remember, according to the college, unless you're doing a specific procedure to remove true pathology, there seems to be no role for laparoscopic lysis of adhesions as the only treatment given for chronic pelvic pain. As we are at the end of our podcast, we have to say it because of the opioid epidemic. Opioids are not recommended for the treatment of chronic pelvic pain, and patients already on opioids for this condition should be slowly and safely weaned. Well, this brings us to a wrap. We have covered the upcoming March 2020 Practice Bulletin from the ACOG on chronic pelvic pain. This is Practice Bulletin number 218. 
Thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. Thank you.